0: And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit <clears throat> KUCI.org slash Privacy Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about privacy and intellectual property. And, you know, I was reading this wonderful blog by uh, Professor Rebecca Tushnet, And it's called 43B Log. Actually, I was reading this article called World Without Privacy. And I said to myself, hmm, we have to get this wonderful professor from Georgetown University on our show. And so let me tell you a little bit about her and then we're going to be thrilled to have her on. Rebecca Tashnight is a professor at Georgetown University Law Center And after clerking for Chief Justice Edward R. Becker of the Third Circuit and Associate Justice David Souter on the Supreme Court, she practiced intellectual property before beginning teaching. Her blog 43, subsection B, blog, blog, uh, covers uh, copyright, trademark, and false uh, advertising law. And of course, she included privacy as well. Her publications include Worth a Thousand Words, The Images of Copyright Law in the Harvard Law Review 2012, Gone in 60 Milliseconds, Trademark Law and Cognitive Science in the Texas Law Review in 2008, and Copy This Essay, How Fair Use Doctrine Harms Free Speech and How Copying Serves it, Yale Law Review 2004. She helped found the Organization for Transformative Works, which is a nonprofit dedicated to supporting and promoting fan works and currently volunteers on its legal committee. She's also an expert on the law of engagement rings. How do you like that one? So you can learn more about her at um, the Georgetown uh, website at uh, georgetown.edu, law.edu. Georgetown.edu. So we're just thrilled to have you, Rebecca. Why don't you join us um, this morning? Well,
1: thank you so much for having me.
0: So why don't you tell us a little bit, you know, you talk about uh, privacy and its relationship to intellectual property. Kind of explain that to us.
1: Well, there are a lot of different intersections between uh privacy and intellectual property um in the World without privacy conference that I wrote about one of those intersections um had to do with the use of pseudonyms, which a lot of people do online for activities that aren't their professional activities and you know, one of those things can be being a fan of something uh whether it's you know a fan of knitting. Um, or a fan of the vampire diaries um lots of people you know go online and participate and you know they what, they choose names that reflect what they're a fan of because that's what they're doing right then and it doesn't re- it really matter so much what their legal name is and then there are questions that arise about whether that's a good thing whether uh, that's a bad thing i don't think it's a good thing um and that a lot of anxiety over pseudonyms is really anxiety over bad behavior, uh, which is a different thing entirely.
0: Yeah. So in terms of, you know, the, the discussion of whether it's a bad thing or whether it's a good thing, I mean, when, when for example, a law professor might be a fan of something that, that others might look on, you know, maybe the, the heads of uh, Georgetown University might not like or the same thing with me. So h- how does that work? Well, so in the in the ordinary
1: case, um, you know, most pseudonyms aren't, you know, particularly resistant to really dedicated inspection. So if you have someone who becomes obsessed or someone who's a newspaper reporter, um, they're probably going to be able to track you down, um, even if you're using a pseudonym uh, online. On the other hand, uh, you know, if all you want is uh, some sort of separation between, uh, you know, your friends in in physical life and the people that you like to talk about My Little Pony uh, with, uh, you know, a pseudonym will work pretty well in most cases. And uh, that's, again, I think a helpful thing. You know, we all have different uh, faces that we show to the rest of the world uh, as Billy Joel and others have said. Um, And, you know being online actually shouldn't be any different from that we should have the ability to you know present the parts of ourselves that are appropriate to the conversation that we're having and sometimes that doesn't involve your legal name
0: exactly so who needs to care about copyright issues then and, and and changes in copyright law nowadays anybody can be a journalist right i mean we we see people with blogs we see people with articles i mean all over the the web we see this and what about copyright law on the Internet? I mean, this is just a wild west, isn't it?
1: Well, it, it, it's not uh, quite the wild west. I mean, but I think our, our real issue is that, uh, n- that some norms still haven't settled, and then there are some norms that have settled, but there are um, powerful interests that would like them to unsettle. Uh, because uh, the norms have settled around uh, a certain amount of fair use and, you know, freedom to reuse. So, for example, um, if you are a blogger, uh, most bloggers don't think too hard about um, you know, uh, finding a picture that illustrates the thing they're talking about and using it. Um, and in many cases, uh, not necessarily all, but in many cases, that'll be fair use. Uh, but that doesn't make a number of copyright owners are happy, so they're sort of trying to change uh the discourse around that and the and the norms, even though it's a widespread practice so the u k government actually just issued this advisory telling people basically that they should be really really careful um you know, what they share online so because you know you don't know where that link came from and this is sort of a weird kind of silly thing to tell people. It seems to me that, you know, they shouldn't, they shouldn't, they should be afraid to share stuff on Facebook because the person who put it up there might not have gotten permission to use that picture. That's sort of, that's not how people communicate. Um, And that's one reason why we should all be concerned about copyright law, even if we don't think of ourselves uh, as authors or as users of copyrighted material, because we inevitably are.
0: Yeah, so, so what is, the, you know, the, the, the state now of that with people, you know, the fair use? What, what is considered fair use?
1: Well, we could go for hours <laughs> on, on that alone. Right. Um, but briefly, I would say that uh, you know, there are a lot of parts of fair use that are pretty intuitive, um, in, you know, as signaled by the use of the word fair. So you, you think about things like, is your use nonprofit? Uh, you know and non commercial is your use doing something new that the, that the original didn't do, so is it a parody is it a commentary is it an analysis um, you know, it, does it give a new meaning or message? All those things are things that uh courts uh take into account you know are you using the whole uh, thing uh, do you need to use the whole thing or are you using an amount that 's appropriate to the thing to what it is that you're doing so you know a book review can appropriately quote. Uh, uh, from a book or uh, or a poem, um, you know, sometimes when you 're dealing with pictures you in order to explain what you 're talking about, you really do have to use the whole thing so it 's a context sensitive analysis, but those are the kinds of questions the court would be asking
0: right and so if you 're if you 're quoting a, a blog of somebody else 's then you and you refer back to them uh, they 're probably going to be happy about it they 're not going to be unhappy because their name was mentioned, and it wasn 't appropriated. Uh, by By the new author, correct so that's right, the, and
1: and credit of course uh, so credit isn 't required by the u s system in order for something to be fair use but it's it 's in general a really, really good idea now you know if I say use the force, Luke, uh you probably know what i 'm talking about right. anyway with i 'm sort of implicitly crediting it, but if you 're using something that 's less uh c- uh commonly known, then you know, while it 's not you know legally dispositive. I think it does have a moral force,
0: right? Right. So let's we'll talk a little bit about uh, SOPA and PIPA, and and I think you're probably going to have to explain what those acronyms are to my audience, so that they know uh, what we're talking about, right? So,
1: well, uh, SOPA and PIPA, uh, I don't actually want to do the acronyms because they're these uh, standard. Uh, these days somehow all new laws have to have acronyms I know. that are protecting so america <laughs> from the scourge of something or other yeah uh, so in this case the scourge was um you know o- online piracy
0: right
1: uh, you know, on- so uh, when copyright owners say that they kind of want you to think about uh, wholesale copying of you know entire movies entire albums and that certainly does go on and that certainly is a problem uh, the problem was that this proposed law was written incredibly broadly, and it was designed to allow a copyright owner to basically shut down sites by complaining to private parties like uh, like Visa and MasterCard and saying, uh, you know, shut these people off. And Visa and MasterCard would then need to shut them off without a trial and without uh, any other, any process, do or right. not. Yeah. Uh, and. Uh, a number of people organized to try and stop this um, and quite successfully agitated uh, uh, and everyone uh, called their representatives and successfully derailed what everyone, I think, had pretty much thought was the unstoppable momentum of the content industries. So it was a really interesting moment where people actually worried about whether the Internet would continue to work the way they were used to it working, and we're willing to take some political action to make that happen or, or to prevent that from
0: happening. Right. Right. So I understand that you focus on, um, non-commercial creators in your work. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Why do you focus on them?
1: So I come out of the world of fandom, fan fiction, fan art, um, which I have been a, a long time participant in, um, but really saw it take off when the internet exploded and, really non-commercial, broad access to different works of fan art became possible for people who before, you know, wouldn't have gone to a convention, wouldn't have found other people who were interested in the same things in the physical world. And I really love the creativity, the passion uh, that fans bring to their projects, and one of the things that I began to see as the internet developed more and more commercially was that um, there weren't as many people speaking for the non-commercial creators. There were lots of people speaking for commercial interests of all kinds. Right. So, you know, Google has, uh, at this point, very good representation. Um, you know, the, the tech sector has a lot of people who will speak for it. Um, but most of those those sort of protect users only insofar as their own economic interests dictate. So. One, I think it's important to have voices for, uh, for ordinary users um, of all kinds uh, speaking up and uh, talking about where value and where new creativity comes from. And the answer is it comes from lots of places, uh, including non-commercial creativity and experimental creativity that can't yet be commercialized but you know, might eventually be the next great thing.
0: And so one of the beauties of the Internet is that these people can get together from all over the world, right? And, and have this um, joint uh, non-commercial creative works shared with each other, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. And uh, you know, people get inspiration, new techniques. So there are artistic communities that can talk to each other that never interacted before. Um, it's just a, a wonderful time to be. Uh, to be around and to be seeing uh, how art- artists are responding,
0: and so what do you do? I mean, when you focus on this, what what are some of the things and activities that you do to to help these uh, proliferate?
1: Well, one of the things I'm most proud of is that uh, there's a law um, called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, right? Uh, which, among other things, uh, and it, does, it did it a lot. Um, I like to call it the Digital Fifteen Minutes Act because it was written um, in nineteen ninety eight and essentially became immediately obsolete uh, in terms <laughs> of what it covered um, but it among the things that it did was it made it illegal to basically make clips from dvds um, and and blu-ray discs when they were developed and so on um, and by calling that circumvention so while you could you know make a clip from a, a videotape, and although that was technically sometimes complicated, uh, it wasn't itself illegal, and then if you had a fair use, if you had a fair use defense, you could do it, uh, because fair use is, is not an infringement of copyright. What the DMCA did was it made it unlawful whether or not your use was fair mm-hmm. to make that clip. And one of the things that we managed to do was to convince the Copyright Office to actually grant an exception an exemption to the DMCA for people engaged in non-commercial remix videos. Mm. Uh, so basically bringing back fair use when it had been taken out of the law. Uh, now we do have to go back every three years because uh, the content industries, which in 1998 didn't really have much competition, mm. much pushback, mm-hmm. um, got it written in that uh, that basically... <laughs> you couldn't make an exception last. Every three years you have to go back, even if everyone agrees um, that the exception is justified, and even if nothing has changed, you still have to go back and make your case all over again, which is a pretty draining process, but you know, we're committed to keeping on with it.
0: Sounds like a very political process.
1: Uh, well, I ha- so one of the interesting things is it's run by the Copyright Office rather than by... Congress or uh, an administrative agency, a typical administrative agency. Oh. And uh, the copyright office is actually full of people who are, work in copyright law because they are really interested in art and artists. And so almost, really a hopeful thing I found is you know they really have taken our argument seriously um, because they are interested in art and they aren't interested in discriminating against Artists based on where they come from. Mm-hmm. So I think once w- once we can identify these new forms of art that really need the capacity to you know, make remix, um, which is often an important part of art. Uh, we, uh, they they heard that, so it, it's not you know it's not just a story about naked self interest. Although there is plenty of that in Washington,
0: mm-hmm. but there's
1: some hopeful stuff too.
0: Yeah, and you're right there, too. (laughs) Being in Georgetown, you're right in the middle of all that kind of stuff. So uh, you you see it all going on. Let's talk about what you mean by transformative work.
1: All right, so transformative is the name that the courts have given to uh, kinds of uses that basically add something new, something that um, comments on or uh, reacts to the original. So a good example might be Um, There's a book a couple years back called The Wind Done Gone, Uh, and what it was was it was a response by the author, Alice Randall, to basically both the love and the pain she felt for Gone with the Wind, um, Mm. which she felt, as a black woman, was both an uh, incredibly compelling story about Scarlett O'Hara and a pretty racist story uh, uh, with uh, some really painful elements, and so she rewrote it uh, with a new character, uh, Sinara, who was uh, the Scarlet's half-sister, uh, and told a, co- uh, a very different story using very similar characters. Uh, and the copyright owner uh, sued, and the court said that this was uh, probably a fair use, that this was the kind of thing uh, that copyright owners shouldn't be able to pre- prevent because it was a creative reaction to. Uh-huh. Uh, the elements of the original that were troubling.
0: Right, right. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, l- let's talk a little bit about Facebook, Twitter, and some of these other services and people putting up their photos. And um, what about those photos being used in advertising? Uh, so this is a really
1: interesting intersection, I think, of intellectual property and privacy. Uh, yeah. Uh, Facebook, of course, is struggling to find uh you know, the long term way that it will make money right. um, and uh, you've probably heard you know if if you are not paying for it you're the product
0: right, right? right. Uh, and
1: that is definitely true uh with Facebook. you are the product being sold to advertisers, and right. one of the ideas they had uh, was well okay let's uh <laughs> let's sell you let's literally sell you uh to advertisers, so if you check in at a place we're going to use that, uh, promote that to at least your friends uh, and show them uh, that, uh, that you like this place, that it's an endorsement.
0: Right. So I'm at um, a restaurant, right, right, with a bunch of friends, and then they want to use that picture that I put up, right?
1: Right. Uh, and uh, there's been a lot of uh, pushback but not too much of it successful. So basically what Facebook tends to do is you know, it rolls out a new feature, there's some outrage about the amount of sharing and the amount of exposure it produces for a little while, and then people sort of get used to it, and then the outrage stops. Um, and so you re- people pretty much are progressively giving up more and more control, and as the contracts get more and more solidly written, um, it's going to become harder to reverse that. Uh, so... One of the decisions that you make, it turns out, uh, when you decide I'm going to be part of Facebook, is that you will be part of a marketing team.
0: Mm. But, you know, first of all, those contracts that they have, you you read their privacy policy and you read their different contracts. It's always changing. So when you read it uh, and you may agree to something and then all of a sudden you haven't read it, are you required to read it every day?
1: No, because they're going to enforce it against you anyway, pretty much. (laughs) Now, there are some exceptions. So there are cases in which minors, for example, they can't actually legally agree to various things.
0: Right, right. Um,
1: But even there, uh, courts have often been pretty tolerant of attempts to bind minors, at least until they explicitly disaffirm uh, the contract, and then basically say, okay, going forward, you're free of that but anything you you agreed to before you're still stuck with. Mm-hmm. Right. So but, so you, so uh the thing that you can get is you know if you quit you may be able to withdraw your consent. But if you want to stay on Facebook, um you know Facebook is going to need to make its money from you somehow.
0: Right. There's no free lunch <laughs> as they say. <laughs>
1: At least not on Facebook.
0: No. What is the relationship between the right of privacy and the right of publicity?
1: This is a, a really interesting question because the the cases against Facebook for exploiting people's identity commercially actually were more about the right of publicity. So the right of privacy is you know the traditional right, the right to be left alone, right the right to be shielded from an unwanted gaze mm-hmm. but that doesn't quite fit with a lot of 20th and 21st century behavior, where, you know, we want attention, but we want it on our own terms. Right. And so the the courts and eventually legislatures began to develop this right of publicity, which was uh, the right to control the commercial exploitation of your identity. So even if you were a public figure, um, you would still have a right to prevent uh, people from using your image in ads. And over time, unfortunately, that right has expanded and expanded, until it's now not just ads, but it is, in some circumstances, art, uh, which is quite troubling. Uh, you know, and As applied to the Facebook ads, uh, you know, I think it makes a fair amount of sense to let people decide whether they want to be you know, part of ads or not, um, but outside the ad context, um, it can be pretty troubling.
0: Well, I, I think especially if I go to a restaurant and someone wants to use me in the ad, and I didn't like the restaurant, <laughs> yeah, then I'm going to have to go on Yelp and say something like, "Oh my god, I hated this restaurant." <laughs> well, the, and, in, the interesting know. thing about the right of
1: publicity is <laughs> it actually doesn't require anything like that. It's it's a pure right to control. So, yeah, so the I think the example I like most is suppose you saw somebody um, who ran an ad saying, you know, Madonna's never had one of our bananas. <laughs> but we think that if she did, she'd like it. So there's nothing false about that. They're right. telling you right up front: she's not endorsing them. Right. right? That still violates the right of publicity, right. Because it's a commercial exploitation of her identity.
0: Right. Right. But that okay. So that's for celebrities, right? Is that is that the it's same actually, thing? Uh, for, in, for in many states,
1: it's for everyone. Okay. So any So so if you're an identifiable person, um, you can stop commercial exploitation of your image.
0: Okay. So do I have the right to do that by just writing to the company and saying, you're exploiting my, take that picture down?
1: Right. Uh, so that depends. Uh, it, now, at this point, it, it, anybody, any website with a marginally competent lawyer will actually include in their terms, and, and you know it's, it's a fun exercise to go look these up. Don't look all of them up because you'll be there for... You know, 40 days reading all the services <laughs> you do, that uh, you use. But, you know, one or two, look at what they say about what they can do, and they will have these incredibly broad uh, statements saying, you know, we can do, we, you know, we can use your image for commercial purposes. Um, you, know, you can't, uh, you know, you grant us a non-revocable right. Uh, as some of this is of you know, at least uncertain legality, but it's enough to give them the confidence that they need and you know, part of it is they'll always ask for for broader rights than they really need right now, you know, because someday they might think of something else they want to do.
0: Yeah, yeah. And when we talk about information privacy in the information age, we talked about the ability to be able to, you know, uh, manage your your information, you know, your sensitive information, your personal information, and that just seems to be eroding more every day. So do, we don't have a lot of time yet but can you tell me a little bit do advertisers have a first amendment or a free speech right to collect that information about us
1: it it does look like the supreme court is going there not without necessarily understanding very much about uh how privacy works t- today so uh the supreme court has granted increasing protection to commercial speakers um and you know you we hear more about it about things like Citizens United, but um this actually has powerful implications for data collection so if collecting data is an exercise of a free speech right, then the government rules that attempt to limit the context in which uh commercial entities can collect the data or even or use the data are argued at least by the companies to infringe their free speech rights, which means the government actually can't stop it. So uh, it, is, uh, it is a little bit like heads I win, tails you lose, because, of course, these companies are not going to let us into their inner secrets. Uh, uh, they, they, they use trade secret and other protections to make sure that we don't know what's going on. We certainly aren't going to get a look at Google's search algorithm. Um, and, you know, there are reasons why Google won't do that, but it means that uh, basically as a consumer, you are in a pretty structurally disadvantaged position.
0: Right. And, and so we have, on one hand, we have like the Fair Credit Reporting Act that allows us to see what's being collected about us um, with regard to our credit, our credit scores. And there's some legislation pending right now with regard to background checks to be able to get that information for background checks. But in California, for example, we do have a law that allows us to get information from commercial entities that collect our information to find out what it is that they've collected about us. So, you know, it's uh it's really interesting to see if that would be considered a first amendment right, right? Right. Especially and, with and you
1: also have to know how to uh, know to ask. Uh, so, you have to know what's going on before you can find out what's going on in some ways.
0: <laughs> exactly. And then like in Europe, you know, they have that opt-in that um, you can't collect uh, information about, uh, like, uh, citizens of the European Union unless they opt in. And then we've got this opt out. So we it sounds like we're still in the Wild West with regard to information privacy and, and First Amendment rights, aren't we?
1: Yeah, I, th- I, I think there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of piecemeal uh, attempts to control, as you said, like the credit reporting. And then we have a different regime for medical records, and we right. have a different regime for you know, educational records. And this, as information becomes more and more unified, right, it's not just Google, but Google is a great example of something where you know, they want to have all the data about you. Right. These piecemeal regimes are going to become less and less successful, I think.
0: Yeah. And then we've got, uh, you know, uh, uh, NSA and, and everything else. <laughs> we get spying on us all over the place, but we are just about out of time, so I want to just thank you again, and um, we have been speaking with Professor Rebecca Tushnet, who's a professor at university, Georgetown University Law Center, and so you want to just give the website for your uh for your blog?
1: So actually, the easiest way to go get there is Tushnet.com T-U-S-H-N-E-T uh, dot .com, and All the links are there.
0: Terrific. Well, thank you so much, and we will have you back again.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: All right. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9, FM in Irvine, and KUCI.org. On the net, I'm Maury Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. on Privacy Piracy, and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not
1: reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.